0: And please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter five. Revelation chapter five, we're looking at verses one through seven in this morning. And again, I'll, I'll give you a, a bit of a summary of where we've been in Revelation. John's amp stand in chapters one through three begins with the Son of Man sending letters to the seven churches, which include brunts and wicked blessings as well as warnings. Uh, to repent of a growing indifference and wickedness. But they're all through, uh, encouraged in one way or another by Christ, and, and he is shepherding them through these letters. And really, they're meant as letters to the whole church in all ages. And it's, they're, they're, they were letters that, that applied to us as well. Then we transitioned in chapter 4, John's brought up into heaven, given this vision where he begins to describe the throne of God that he sees. God is seated on his throne, and yet he doesn't describe what God looks like. He describes the glory that's emanating, right, from uh, like, like gemstones that reflect the, the splendor of his holiness. And around the throne are four living creatures, and then there's 24 elders as well, and all of them are engaged in, in this ceaseless Praise of God's holiness and his worthiness. Those are the themes that we looked at last time. The seeing praise of God's holiness and his worthiness. And as we saw in Ezekiel, we, we made mention of the fact that as we worship a God who is holy and worthy, he is transforming us, right? He is making us holy and worthy. To be before him, to worship him, he's preparing us for eternity. That is how he does it is through the, the, the means of worship, the ordinary means of grace, right? that we come to him, worshiping him, and he begins a work of transformation through that. So our earthly worship ought to be modeled after this heavenly worship. What we see in heaven is that the throne is in the center. They're worshiping God. It is a God-centered worship. It is about his holiness and his worthiness that we sing. And that is what our earthly worship should reflect as well. Revelation of God's glory should be central. And so as we gather to lift our but it's not as if we're turning inward. He is doing that work of transformation through us. But it's not as if we're turning inward on ourselves, beginning to evaluate ourselves here. We're continuing to worship him, and he does that work as we do so. So in chapter 5, John will continue his description of what he sees taking place in heaven, but even more than that, his vision establishes why any of us are here this morning. All right, while chapter 4 describes heavenly worship and what takes place in worship, chapter 5 gives us the grounds for worship. Right, why do any of us have access to worship God? That is what is answered here by Revelation 5. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Once again, we thank you that we have your revelation to turn to, to learn from, to understand something more about yourself and ourselves, our need for you. Lord, so speak to us. Uh, Remove the distractions from our minds. Help us to, to focus on your word. Help us to ask the right questions of ourselves. As we're listening and as we're taking notes, Lord, may you do that work as we continue to worship you, as we sit under the preaching of your word. May you do that work in our hearts that we desperately need, Lord, a work of grace, a work of change and transformation, that we might rightly respond, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear the truth and hearts that are softened by your word. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me, Revelation 5, verses 1 through 7. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold the lion and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Amen. This is God's holy word. There's something powerful just reading the word. Just picturing this illustration, this image of what's taking place, this vision that John describes that he himself is witnessing. The first uh, two verses, I want to consider who is worthy to open the scroll. It's the question that the mighty angel is proclaiming with a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? These opening verses really pose the problem that humanity faces. After all that God the creator has done for us, and God the creator was acknowledged and worshipped there in chapter four, after all of that, how can we be right with him. Right? Because he, he is worthy to receive our worship, but are we worthy to offer it? Right. The scroll with seven seals is resting in God's sovereign right hand. And before we address the the primary question of finding one worthy to open the scroll, we need to ask what is the scroll? What does it represent? Well, it's written front and back, and we've seen that before. It's written with the words of revelation. Uh, The picture is reminiscent of the scroll we read about in Ezekiel. Uh, It's in chapter 2 that Ezekiel would take that scroll, which was also written front and back, and written with the words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he was to eat that scroll, ingest, like digest the, the word, the message that God would, was giving him to proclaim, and then he was to go out and declare those words, those prophecies to the people. So the message here in Revelation is full, and it reminds us, it takes us back to that picture of Ezekiel. It's a, a scroll that, is, that has no room to add anything. It's written, most scrolls only had writing on the inside. They only had writing on one side. They didn't write on the back. It was a little more difficult. But if you, if you were uh, you know, out of space, that is what you had to do. You had to, you had to take the effort that it took, and you had to make the effort it took to write on the back side as well and to fill it without any space left. So the only other place that a sealed scroll is mentioned is found in Daniel. And there, God told Daniel to seal up the contents of his vision to be revealed in the latter days. Read that in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. So revelation is speaking of the fulfillment of that promise that was given to Daniel. It's the revelation of God that had been sealed for the latter days that is now sitting here in the hand of of a sovereign God waiting to be opened by the one who is worthy to open it. And so each successive seal is, uh, is broken and another portion of redemptive history will be revealed. And so what we will see in chapter 6 is that the scroll contains words of judgment. And every, every seal is broken and another revelation of judgment comes out. And so we'll describe that when we get there in chapter 6. But the point is that that's what is inside this scroll. It is a picture of God's eternal plan. It seems to be the best way to understand it is the contents of the scroll are God's eternal plan, including all of human history. And as each, again, as each seal is broken, what'll, what'll happen next in God's eternal plan is judgment. Judgment's going to be carried out upon the earth. So the breaking of each of the seven seals results in judgment, but they are followed then by the blessing of heavenly worship. We go right back into the heavenlies in chapter 7. And you have this picture of worshiping God once again. Remember, we we're dealing with um, a cyclical order of the events that are being described. It's not just straight chron- chronological order. And so the, the the idea that you have judgment described followed by the blessing of heavenly worship is consistent with the same thing you find in both Ezekiel and Daniel. As we've already seen reading through Ezekiel, you, we've talked about the judgment multiple places, but it's also the promise of a remnant being preserved and protected. So there's, there's, there's warnings and then there's also blessings. There's promises of, of, um, and, and threats of judgment followed by blessings. And so this is consistent with what we find there in Ezekiel, as well as Daniel. So the scroll that was initially bitter for Ezekiel to eat would become or became sweet in his mouth. That itself illustrated this, this principle, right, of judgment followed by um, blessing. Warnings of judgment are followed by promises of salvation for God's people. A remnant is preserved in every case. In Revelation, the judgment of the wicked is followed by heavenly rejoicing in chapter 7. So the inheritance uh, that we were predestined to enjoy is expressed there after the judgment of God is carried out. All of God's sovereign decrees then are contained in this scroll. They're sealed until one comes who is worthy to open it and that is who the mighty angel is calling upon. Right? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? In other words, who is capable of executing God's eternal decrees? That's really what's happening here. It's not just who's worthy to open the scroll but, uh, and who's worthy to break the seals, but, but then who's able to actually participate in what is described following. Because that's what will happen in chapter 6. But here you have the one who is opening the scroll must be capable of executing those decrees. So seals are the wax binding that keeps the contents of a letter safe. Uh, They serve to authenticate the author of the contents as well as to limit the intended audience so that the wrong person doesn't open the letter. So only those with uh, the proper authority were permitted to break the seal. And, of course, in this case, the, the seals are keeping the contents mysterious. They don't know what God's eternal plan, uh, what is written on that scroll. Um, but on top of that, it, the fact that it's sealed and not being opened is also preventing the events from being carried out. Now, remember, this is a vision, so it's not that, that these things are actually happening at, in time, like, at the moment, John is seeing the vision taking place, but he is saying the the picture that he has is that this scroll, that someone's going to have to open it if both the judgments and the promises that follow are going to be carried out. Someone has to come who is worthy to open it. So this is, a, this is why we'll see in the next section, John responds the way he does. There's a a connection here between the opening of the scroll and the fulfillment of their contents. Greg Bill points to Daniel chapter 12, verses 8 and 9 as an example of this. Um, And I should have marked it, but I forgot to do so. Daniel chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So whoever is worthy to open the scroll must also be ready and able to execute its contents. Daniel is not going to understand these things, and he is not. the time is not right for these events to take place. So as long as they remain sealed, these events are not going to occur. So put yourself here in John's position for a moment. Your senses have been overwhelmed by this immense display of God's glory at the center of the throne. You hear the hymns of the four living creatures and the 24 elders declaring the holiness and worthiness of God. And now there's a critical task that must be assigned. You hear the mighty angel thunder this question to everyone present. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? And maybe you want to be able to say, here am I. Just like Isaiah was able to declare after God anointed and appointed him to be his prophet in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8. But you know that your sin has disqualified you from this task. If you're a member of this church, you have already acknowledged this before the rest of the congregation as well. The first vow of church membership is, do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? Do you acknowledge that that is your position? Do you acknowledge your unworthiness, in other words, apart from Christ? So like John, we're in no place to open this scroll. Our sin has disqualified us. And um, as those who deserve to bear the wrath of God, we are not in any position to execute that wrath upon the wicked. So can anyone answer that question differently? That's the question. Is there anyone maybe in heaven or even below the earth? capable of opening the scroll. That's what we see next. No one was worthy to open the scroll. Verses three through four. Not only was there no human representative worthy to open the scroll, but there was no one in heaven or under the earth who was able to open the scroll either. Verse three. There was not a single representative, dead or alive, who was found to be worthy. Heavenly creatures were sinless but incapable of representing humanity because they were not human. And so how could they represent humanity in that sense? All creatures on earth were sinful and thus disqualified from representing humanity as well. No one does good. All are corrupt. You can look at multiple verses. Psalm fourteen, three; Romans chapter 3. No one alive is righteous before God, Psalm 143, verse 2. Everyone sins, Ecclesiastes 7.20. The situation leaves John feeling hopeless, and with a sense of great despair, he begins to weep loudly. The pervasive nature of total depravity has left everyone unworthy. Philip Hughes says, nothing is more lamentable than than the fact that by our own ungodliness, we have deprived ourselves of all worthiness. But the scroll had to be opened in order to complete this phase of redemptive history. In order to, you know, John, John sees that no one is able to open this scroll, and therefore, he doesn't understand how there's any hope. Of seeing the promises fulfilled. The kingdom of God will never reach the fullness of glory in the new heavens and the new earth if this scroll remains unopened. And so it leaves the apostle in deep mourning. And Joel Beakey says every time you find an apostle weeping in the New Testament, it is because he is burdened with his need for forgiveness or the need of the world for forgiveness. Every time you find an apostle weeping in the New Testament, they're weeping out of a sense of the, the need of their own, their own need for forgiveness or the need of others. But they look upon others and they see their sin and what it's just doing to them and they repent and penting, Weeping, crying out to God to grant repentance and forgiveness. Grieving over sin is an integral part of true Repentance. The apostles model by their own example the way we should react to our own sin and even the sin of others. That we would be filled with such shame and regret that it would cause us to weep, to mourn. Do you weep over your sin? Or have you become so comfortable in it that you're toward, sort of indifferent towards it. It has little impact upon you emotionally. Is your sin your enemy or your ally? Are you fighting against it or are you befriending it? Do you cry out for the Lord's forgiveness or do you presume upon his grace and treat your sin flippantly? Everybody sins, therefore it doesn't really matter. I'm trusting in Christ and that's all that matters. That's to presume upon the grace of God. To use grace as an excuse to sin. To say that because of who I am in Christ, I therefore can live however I please. That's not what grace does. That's not the impact that Paul describes right, in Romans chapter 7 and 8. We should cry out in shame when we sin. We should weep over our sin and not grow complacent and comfortable in it. John provides an example here of repentance. And he weeps over, I believe, his own sin as well as the sin of all mankind who had left none worthy. He weeps over the situation that we're in. And he recognizes his relation to that. He, he recognizes he couldn't just say, I'm, here I am. I'll, I'll, I'll open the scroll. So therefore, he knows he himself is not worthy. He's aware of his own sin and he's aware of the sin of all mankind that has left none worthy. However, even, even true repentance is empty if the Mercy of God remains inaccessible. It, it wouldn't matter if we could become truly repentant if there still remained no one worthy. If the story's not done. The vision doesn't conclude here. Only one thing can turn our sorrow over sin into joy, and that's that the lamb is worthy to open the scroll. And that's what we find in verses five through seven. The elder begins by informing him there to to stop weeping. Stop weeping because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, can open the scroll and its seals. He is conquered. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he's the representative that was promised in Genesis chapter 49, verses nine through 10. He's the, the root of David. He's the king in the line of David who would conquer. Prophesied in Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 10, and Romans fifteen twelve, speaks of that. So he can open the scroll and its seals because he has conquered. Uh, this is a past conquering that the lion achieved. And when John turns to see the lion, his eyes fall upon a lamb. In verse 6. Although the lamb looks like it had been slain, it is, in fact, very much alive. It's standing. Standing in the midst of the four living creatures and the 24 elders, the lamb is standing somewhere near the center, near the throne, ready to approach the throne in verse 7. So the lamb was associated with... The suffering servant who made no defense against his oppressors, Isaiah 53, 7. You see Jesus fulfilling that prophecy in Matthew uh, 26, Matthew 27, and Luke 23. John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Lamb of God. Paul referred to Jesus as our Passover Lamb, and Peter speaks of the blood of Christ being like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Therefore, the reference to Jesus as the Lamb implies both his suffering and the victory that he achieved for the deliverance of God's people. With the description of the Lamb standing as though it had been slain, we cannot help but equate the victory with Christ's sacrifice upon the cross. However, Christ's victory includes the entire phase of his earthly life, his birth, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. It's his defeat of sin and death, right? This concept is recapitulated. It'll be repeated again in Revelation chapter 12, verses seven through 11, where we, where we see the dragon fighting to destroy this child that is born by the virgin. So another picture, again, will cycle back, right back around to the earthly life of Jesus. This is why, though, his conquering, On the cross and in his resurrection, this is why he already possessed the keys of death and Hades in Revelation chapter 1. I remember that vision that we began with of the Son of Man describes him as having the keys of death and Hades. He is the one who has the authority over life and death. So this lion lamb has conquered sin and death by suffering his own death. It's the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman has received a mortal wound to the heel while crushing the head of the serpent. That was the only way that he could become our redeemer. And so he's standing as though slain with seven horns and seven eyes. Again, we've seen seven repeated several times here. It's the number of completion or perfection. And so the idea is that the the horns are always associated with power, Uh, in Psalm, and you read it in Psalm 89 and Daniel 7 as well, Daniel 8. So the horns are associated with power, and then eyes are associated with knowledge or insight, but here, very specifically, the eyes are said to be connected with the Holy Spirit, They're the, the, the seven spirits sent out by God, and as we've said, seven being the number of completion, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. You can go to Zechariah 4, where it also speaks of the same idea of seven, but then representing the one Spirit of God. So here's the the picture is that Jesus himself has the seven horns and the seven, or the lamb has the seven horns and the seven eyes. So you put it all together. We see the omnipotent, the all-powerful, the omniscient, all-knowing lamb in harmony with the Spirit, whose eyes govern every square inch of creation, earth's remotest regions. And that's why we began with that song, Christ Shall Have Dominion. Because the Spirit's eyes see perfectly everything. They are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Every square inch is under the domain of the Lamb. So he's prepared to take the scroll from the hand of God the Father because he alone has dominion. He alone is worthy. The Lamb didn't need to ask for permission to take the scroll, he had already satisfied the righteous requirements of the law in his life and death, in his active and passive obedience. And so in his substitutionary death on the cross, Jesus became worthy to carry out the final judgment of the wicked as well as the final redemption of his bride that is described in the rest of this book. Although no one from God's creation in heaven on earth or under the earth was found worthy to open the scroll, all of them will bow down before Jesus and confess him as Lord. So chapter five shows why any of us have access to God, access to come before the throne of God and worship at his feet. In order to worship God the creator, described in chapter four, we must know God the redeemer, described in chapter five. And that's the second vow of church membership. And if you're a member here, you've also confessed that. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, and do you receive and rest upon him alone for your salvation as he is offered in the gospel? That's that's acknowledging that I'm not worthy and Christ alone is worthy. The reason why we're here, the reason why we can... Join this church. The reason why we can partake in worship and fellowship, the reason why we can participate in the Lord's Supper is because we have a Savior, Christ alone, who is worthy to open the scroll of God's eternal plan because he alone was the perfect satisfaction for sin. He was the only lamb whose perfect sacrifice satisfied the justice of God. Right, why, why is the image a lamb? Well, because it's associated with the sacrificial system. And it brings us back to the Old Testament sacrificial system that, that allowed people to come before God and worship him. To do so in a, in a worthy manner was because they made a sacrifice, right? the shed blood of a lamb, but it was an imperfect sacrifice. Right? And Hebrews describes fact, that that system has been done away because Christ is our final Passover lamb. He alone is worthy because he is the perfect satisfaction for sin. So in light of that reality, the only proper response is what we see happening in the rest of chapter five. It's a united chorus of praise and adoration for the lamb who is worthy. That's the privilege that we have every time we gather together in corporate worship, that we can join them in our song of response. Right? We can join him in singing, or join this heavenly chorus, singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder. It is an important reminder. It is one that we should have on our minds every time we gather, every time we worship. That we come not because we ourselves are worthy, but because Christ alone is worthy. And as we worship a worthy God, as we, as we come to know God through our Redeemer, that we too are being transformed. And we are being changed as we worship you. Lord, do that work in us even now as we respond with grateful hearts. Lord, we long to crown him with many crowns. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.